And it wasn't until spectators started making their way back towards where we were that you had an inkling of what had happened. And I remember stopping this woman and she asked me, what's going on? And it threw me off because people were running away. And it was almost something that you see like when you watch a, a movie and there's some natural disaster and you see these people running in the streets. It was really surreal and scary. And as soon as I said, what's happening? She said, bombs exploded at the finish line. And particularly what she said was bombs blew up the grandstands. And because my uncle had worked for John Hancock, he had got my entire family and my high school girlfriend, all of them, uh, tickets so they could sit in the grandstand so they didn't have to sit on the left side of Boylston Street and get tired during the race. So those, those specific words that she said changed my entire life. Welcome to the Feel Good Running Podcast, where our goal is to keep you motivated, inspired, and energized. As a runner, or perhaps you are looking for the right motivation to become one, you've definitely found the right place. We share inspirational stories from real runners, motivating running-related information, and much more to help you feel good about your running. And now your host and a longtime Feel Good Runner himself, Jim Lynch. All right, let's get this show rolling, man. Welcome, runners. My name is Jim Lynch. This is my podcast, Feel Good Running. I want to welcome you to it. This is episode number 32, and we're recording this in August of 2020. You know, that wonderful year, 2020, that we're all experiencing. How joyful this year is, isn't it? Anyways, I have a guest today that you're going to love. His name is Bobby O'Donnell, and he's wrote a book called Running Wild. This young gentleman, he's 27 years old, but he has lived more life than a lot of us probably will ever live. And it all started with running the Boston Marathon in 2013. We all know what happened that year, and it changed his life forever. So we're going to get to that in just a little bit. And you do not want to miss that conversation because you will have a chance, possible chance, to receive an autographed copy of Bobby O'Donnell's book, Running Wild, free of charge, sent by me personally to you. Hmm. How's that all going to work out? Well, you'll have to listen and find out, won't you? All right. Uh, what's going on? I don't have a lot to say. It's getting very frustrating because I want to do some of those news segments that I was doing, those inspirational news segments. You know, the, uh, the mini-sodes that I was putting together with the inspirational stories of runners. But there's no real running news that I can share with you. You know, this pandemic, it's really put a damper on all of us. But you know what? One day at a time, just like when we run one foot in front of the other, well, we got to go through this life one day at a time. And I hope you're all being safe, wearing your mask when you're out in public and just doing all the things that we need to do together to get through this. I still remain very optimistic that soon, hopefully 2021, more races will come back. But speaking of 2021, something very bothersome that I'm keeping my eye on, rock and roll marathons. Well, they canceled the Denver Rock and Roll Half Marathon, of course, this year, but they also canceled it for next year and will bring it back in 2022. Also, the Rock and Roll New Orleans Marathon and Half Marathon canceled this year and next year, not coming back till 2022. 
<sighs> I just hope this isn't a trend coming up. Us runners need our races. Hmm. Well, on a good side, sort of, but there is not a good ending to it. But it's still a good story. I started trail running. I went to my local running store. If you haven't listened to my last episode, you really want to. It's about supporting your local running store. And if you did listen to that episode, you know my local running store is Runner's Roost right here in Denver. And I bought a brand new pair of Hoka Speed Goat trail running shoes and about 160 bucks for these babies. And I went out to Green Mountain about a week and a half ago and ran that trail. It's about six and a half miles around, maybe a little less than six and a half miles. And it was just spectacular and beautiful. And I just love coming back to the trails. It was so, it was just really a good experience. And on my way home, I went to the grocery store and got some groceries and I got home and took as much up to my place as possible, the groceries and some other things. And I left my speed goats in the backseat of my car and forgot about bringing them back up, you know? And guess what? I left my car unlocked and somebody owns a brand new pair of stolen Hoka Ono Ono speed goat trail running shoes. I got one run out of them, $160, and that's all I got out of them, one run. What a lesson I learned. I don't leave anything in my car anymore. Nothing, not even a penny. I'm not even leaving a penny in my car. So anyways, that, that's kind of where I'm at, you know, and that's about all I want to talk about today. Throw me some good karma out there, all right? Do, you know what? Do some good karma and share this episode with somebody. Share my podcast with somebody. We are closing in on 10,000 downloads since I started this thing. I am so overjoyed and thankful for all of you. And please... Please know how much I appreciate you listening to this and, and please share it because it's really helping the show and, and um, I love bringing these episodes to you and so your, your support is really, really appreciated. All right, that's it. I don't have anything else to say. I promise you next episode, maybe I'll have something else. Much more positive to say, right? Okay. And yes, I, I did go out and buy another pair of... Hoka Ono Ono Speedgoat running shoes at my favorite running store here in Denver, Runner's Roost. Thought you'd like to know that. And now it's time to welcome this episode's very special running guest. Bobby O'Donnell is the author of the book Running Wild. At 17 years old, he went to Boston to celebrate his dad's birthday. His dad's birthday happened to be in April, the same time as the Boston Marathon. And while they were there, he saw somebody wearing a Boston Marathon jacket. And at that point, he wanted one. He thought they looked really cool. So he told his dad that he was going to run the Boston Marathon. Well, that dream did come true, but it also became a nightmare when he ran it in 2013, the year of the bombings. The course of the events that day and what followed changed his life forever. On a mission to heal from severe PTSD, he went on a journey to run a race across all seven continents, and he completed all of this by the age of 25. Amazing. This is definitely a story of the human spirit and Bobby's incredible desire to want to heal 
And you know what? During that process, he discovered international travel and the love of nature and many wonders of the world. It's amazing adventures he's been on. And he's only 25. His book, Running Wild, is an excellent and inspiring read. Take it from me. I read it. That's why we're doing this. And I have a link to it in the show notes where you can purchase the book. And oh yeah, I have five autograph copies that I plan to give away. So if you listen towards the end of the conversation, you can find out how you have the chance to get one of these. And hey, I'm going to personally send it to you. Okay? All right. Now here is me talking to Bobby O'Donnell. Enjoy. So how are you doing with the pandemic? Uh, doing good. Had a, a nice break kind of mid-summer, but I've been working as a paramedic through it, so it's been uh, nothing short of busy. It, it quieted down a fair bit in March and April when people just weren't wanting to go or be in hospitals as much, so people weren't calling 911. And I uh, work as a critical care paramedic as well, though, so a lot of um, ventilated patient transfers and things like that, and right back to it. And now that summer appears to be in full swing, it's just really busy time to work in healthcare. Yeah. And you, and you were, uh, you were born in Boston, right? You don't live there now, but you were born in Boston. No, I split my time between New Hampshire and Glasgow in Scotland. Oh, do you? Two places. You love that international stuff. We'll definitely be talking about that. (laughs) Um, and you're a 2016 graduate of, uh, St. Anselm college in Manchester, New Hampshire. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Yeah, I went to paramedic school during um, while I was at St. A's, so my undergraduate's in biology and just kind of did both at the same time. I always tell people I don't regret doing it, but I'd never do it again. You just don't have much of a life for two years when you're yeah. trying to do that. But uh, yeah, no, it's, it's great. It's been uh, amazing for funding travel and, like you said, working in emergency medicine. You're always going to be able to find a job somewhere and you're never short on work. So right. No Great skill you have. I mean, it's not it's a it's a skill that can save people's lives, too. So, I mean, I commend you on that. Um, so you were you were 17 years old and you went to celebrate your dad's birthday, went to Boston and it was right around the time of the Boston Marathon. And you saw the Boston Marathon jacket and you right. and you said to your dad, uh, I'm going to run the Boston Marathon. Tell me about that. Yeah, that's, we lived in a suburb just maybe 20, 25 minutes outside of Boston. My dad's birthday is on April 21st. And his big thing that he liked to do to celebrate every year is we take, they have a ferry that goes into Boston. So you get a nice boat ride into Boston Harbor and we'd walk around and eat food. And it must have been just kind of the first time that I noticed this, maybe because I was going into my later years of high school and I wanted to look cool. And there were these really slick looking Adidas windbreakers that everyone seemed to be wearing that day walking around and or limping around and and at that age it was just a, a cool jacket and I wanted one and we got close enough behind someone to see that it said 2017 Boston Marathon or sorry 2011 Boston Marathon and that was it I said I'm gonna go run the Boston Marathon and just for the jacket on. just for the jacket <laughs> that is and I wasn't a runner I played ice hockey and golf and tennis growing up there was no no running to be had for me well, you know, that it's, it's a jinx to wear that jacket before the Boston Marathon. I know. I did That's it. I, I had to get out and do it. 
I, I wore it before the 2003 Boston Marathon, and it was one of my only DNFs. My, I was having issues with sciatica, and then my back just really started going, and I dropped at mile 18 that year. Mm-hmm. It was the worst day for me as far as a runner, and uh, oh, I ended up having back crazy. surgery. But I went back next year, and I ran it, so I was all good. So you uh, you were never ran before, and you started off with simple runs, didn't know how you were going to deal with it. You did a seven-mile run in Falmouth. How do you pronounce it? Yeah, Falmouth. Falmouth, Massachusetts. Right. The road race there is a seven-miler. That's up in Cape Cod area, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right, kind of mid-Cape. And that was your first real longest run at that time. Yeah, that was the the first official race and the longest run. I think I had ran five miles before that. And it's funny, I was just talking to my mom because it was uh, really hot and humid out here today in, in New England. I said, man, it was brutal going out running today. And I said, do you remember that time? And we're saying it was nine years ago. Now, my last longest run before that seven-mile road race, I went out to do five miles. And I had to call her halfway through. I had to come pick me up. Oh. That was, you know, August 2011. Yeah. And then you uh, you decided to do the, the one marathon before Boston, and that was Philly. Yeah. And, and you were 17 years old when you did that. I was. It was uh, the fall of my senior year of high school. You did a uh, 357.34 in that race. And uh, I just want you to know that my first race, my first marathon was Los Angeles, and my time was 358.13. So we were within less than a minute of each other on our first marathon. <laughs> Crazy. And I loved your quote, quote in your book that the wall is a heartless bitch. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of your listeners can resonate with that. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who's done a marathon will definitely resonate with that. Um, and what was your, what was it like your first marathon, the Philadelphia marathon? I, when you went through that and going through the different, phases of it where your body felt great and then you didn't feel so good and but then as you got towards the finish line what was your experience like that first one you know philly is what made me become addicted to running it was the the whole experience and the process going through it and the whole training cycle is what really appealed to me because when you look at team sports or whatever you're into growing up there's very few things that you can do where so much training and preparation goes into one day. And then this feeling of success in one exact moment when you cross that finish line and you remember all those horrible, hot and humid runs or days doing hills and the days you didn't want to get out of bed, but you did it anyway. And you knew that you were working towards this very specific thing. And then you get there to the event, especially, you know, a a city race. That's what I started with well before I got into trails. There's thousands and thousands of people there, and you feel like you're a professional athlete. People are cheering for you, and and you have your plan out, and it's very executed and calculated. And when you get to that finish line area, you feel like it's all come together. And there were no moments in my life so far where I had ever experienced anything like that, and I just wanted more. It's an amazing feeling when you cross it for the first time. You know, and I, I've done 101 marathons and, uh, every, it is crazy, <laughs> but I'm done. I only do halves and less. But the great thing about it is, is that every single race that you do, no matter which one it is, it's still exhilarating when you come across the finish line. 
It really doesn't Absolutely. matter. And you, your training was, uh, you picked up a book, Hal, Hal Higdon, who uh, is a, you know, just an icon in the running world. He's been around forever. Yeah, it wasn't even a book. I went on, uh, I signed up for Philadelphia the night after I ran that seven mile road race because of that same thing, that addictive feeling of putting in all this work and then having this feeling of success crossing the finish line. And that night I went on the internet and found the Philadelphia Marathon was 100 days away. I said, all right, well, good enough. And then the next thing I did was open a new tab and search marathon training plan. And then I backspaced that and I said beginner marathon training plan because I didn't want to be too ambitious about it. And found Hal Higdon and looked great and just modified it down from the 18 weeks to 100 days. You know, there's a lot of training plans out there, but still those old school plans was before technology and all that. And there's still really good plans. Hal Higdon, Jeff Galloway, just a ton of them out there uh, from the old school. You could even probably pick up uh, one of the first, I think it's a New York Roadrunners book from way back in the day of the first part of the New York City Marathon. And they have even training plans in that. But now it's all scientific and all that. I'm an old school kind of guy when it comes to running. Um, yeah, it was you, a wake up call when I started running in college. <laughs> right, right. I mean, basically what running is, is you put on your shoes and you go out and run. I mean, that's, that's really all it is. And you just work on becoming faster and better and you find different techniques that work for you. So you, with the 357, obviously that didn't qualify you for Boston and you needed to get into Boston. And so you went in on the charity route, but you really did a heck of a job to get in for the 2013 Boston Marathon. Uh, you went through a very near and dear charity to you, uh, the Boston Children's Hospital. Tell me how, how that all came about. Yeah, so I was 18 in that fall when I got my number for Boston and was really uncertain about the whole charity route because at 18 years old, I had no idea if I could actually raise $5,000 and my parents wouldn't be too happy with me if they needed to foot the rest of the bill and I'd be paying them off for the rest of college on top of the student loans. So I was a, a new EMT at the time. I got my EMT when I was 18. I was just about to start paramedic school that next year. And very early on as a healthcare provider, I realized that pediatric emergencies are by far the most difficult to, to deal with both you know, tactically and emotionally. And it just amazed me at the people who work with the sickest children that you could imagine. You know, children come from all over the world, the Children's Hospital Boston, and they're doing this every single day. And I thought to myself, you know, I could never work with pediatrics full time. But if I can contribute to this amazing hospital in some other way, and especially through running, then it was a no brainer that that was how I was going to do it. And I was really lucky that my uncle works for John Hancock, who's one of the principal sponsors of the Boston Marathon. And he was able to get me a number where I could choose my charity. And if I didn't get to $5,000, then I didn't get to $5,000. I didn't have to pay the rest. So it did take a bit of the, the stress and pressure off of it. But you you well exceeded $5,000. Yeah, we did all right. Yeah, we raised uh, the first year $7,800 right around there. And then you uh, you even created a a golf tournament around it, right? We did. Yeah, we had, a, we had a golf tournament and got a, a lot of attention from kind of local news outlets and media and just amazing how generous people were with both their time and their money. So you got into the Boston Marathon 2013 
and train for it. And uh, it's the Super Bowl, of course, of all marathons out there. Everybody wants to be in Boston. It's just the most prestigious marathon in the United States. And even internationally, I would think that Boston is probably one of the most prestigious marathons. Um, So you you prepared, you're ready to go, you get there um, all excited on uh, Monday, April 15th, 2013. And uh, let's talk about the start line. How did you feel when you were going out to Hoppington and uh, getting ready to go into the village? Man, I was the most excited I've ever been in my entire life. That whole night before, it was like back when you're seven years old on Christmas Eve. It was like all I could think about was what was going to happen that next day from from my dad driving me into Boston to get the bus out to Hopkington to the start line to, you know, getting to see the Sitcos. I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. So, you know, getting close to the, the Fenway area and just was playing it over and over in my mind to the point where I thought I knew exactly how that day was going to go. And, and there's very few moments or days in your life that you can wake up in the morning and absolutely know that it's going to be a day you'll never forget. And that's what that first Boston Marathon was going to be for me. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you get into the corrals and, you know, all the excitement because you got to, you may, it may have been different for you, but when you're coming in from out of town, you got to get out there pretty early. So you're hanging out. Well, at least when I did it, it started at 12 a one or something like that. It was right after noon. I think they moved at the 10, 10 o'clock or something like that. I think in 2013, I want to say it was somewhere between 11 and 1130. Okay. So they did the different corrals and start times and stuff like that for you. Yeah. And, and so you get to the corral and they, it's so exciting. Everybody's there packed together helicopters on the front because they're getting ready to send off the elites. And all of a sudden the race starts and you start, you start walking for quite a while until you get, you know, to the start line. And you were cruising. You were doing pretty good in the race. What'd you think about the screaming ladies at about mile 12? Yeah, Wellesley College. Yeah, that was, <laughs> the, there's so many, you know, historic parts of that race. And because it was just, I mean, it was literally the reason why I started running. I had read, you know, a couple of the Bill Rogers books on it knew so much about the history that I was just so excited to be taking part in it. And it was yeah. everything that I was going by. I had read something about or knew something about, and it was just such a special race. And yeah, I, I had a great start. I had, so I ended up running cross country in college that fall before and got coached in running for the first time, got much faster, but also beat my body up quite a bit. So then by the end of the season through the winter, I was working through hip flexor injuries, but recovered good enough for Boston or so I thought, and you, you know, the first kind of 10 miles or so of Boston is this very deceiving downhill. So you tend to go out a bit faster than you anticipate because you just feel great. And then you start hitting hills around 12 miles or so, which was what, uh, when I started to feel that hip flexor flare up again. Right. And then you continue and you don't really have many hills until you get uh, to heartbreak hill. And I think that we're, that's got to be around 19 or 20, somewhere in there mm-hmm. is heartbreak. Cause I know when I, when I had to end my run the first year at mile 18, I know heartbreak hill wasn't too far away. I think, mm-hmm. I think it's just starting to climb it, you know, just after that yeah. aid station. 19 and 20. Right, right. Mm-hmm. So you had a friend jump in with you when you were feeling crappy and he helped out quite a bit. 
my best friends. Actually, you know, it's really funny uh, about that. You bring that up. Uh, his name's Brian Higgins. He's one of my teammates in college and he lives out in Salt Lake City, Utah now. And when I got to the end of the Colorado trail in Durango, he surprised me and, and was there at the end. I had really? absolutely no idea. It was awesome. Nice. How about that? That's, that's a, that's, that's awesome. He's a great friend. Yeah. Well, he was with you and you knew that the finish was coming up and it was going to be an amazing, amazing thing for you when you finally saw the finish line down the road. But you were at mile 25.6 and then something happened and it changed the whole entire course of your life. Absolutely. The, some police officers had kind of stepped out in front of the race and were telling and telling people to hold up. It was right by the Mass Ave bridge and a few runners kind of trickled through and we stopped and no one really knew what was happening. It was the, you know, you're 0.6 miles from the end of the Boston Marathon. You've been running for quite some time and you know, you're just so close to the end and all you want to do is finish. And at first it was really kind of agitated about it. I'm like, Oh, I was, I'm, I'm ready to go. The clock's ticking. And, and then people are starting to walk around and you're stretching your legs and then waiting for so long at this point, you know, sat down on the sidewalk and, then out of the blue, the police officer, you know, the, the race is over. You need to exit towards this direction. They're pointing back down the street. And that was all the information they had. And in fairness, just, you know, a couple blocks over, they had no idea the extent of what was happening at the finish line area. You know, we could hear, you'd heard a loud bang, but you're in the middle of the city. And it's a day where there's millions of spectators and people moving around and there's cars. So why would you ever expect that that bang would be a bomb? And because there's those two quick turns at the end of the Boston Marathon, you know, as the crow flies, you're a lot closer than 0.6 miles. So you can hear a lot more than you can see. And Brian and I just had no idea what to do except start walking with the crowd of people and just trying to process that being 0.6 miles from the end of the Boston Marathon, you now weren't going to finish it and wondering what was going on that would caused this to happen and it wasn't until spectators started making their way back towards where we were that you had an inkling of what had happened and I remember stopping this woman and she I said what's going on and it threw me off because people were running away and it was almost something that you see like when you watch a, a movie and there's some natural disaster and you see these people running in the streets it's really surreal and scary and so I said, what's happening? She said, bombs exploded at the finish line. And particularly what she said was bombs blew up the grandstands. And because my uncle had worked for John Hancock, he had got my entire family and my high school girlfriend, all of them uh, tickets so they could sit in the grandstands. So they didn't have to sit on the left side of Boylston Street and get tired during the race. So those, those specific words that she said changed my entire life. Because when you think about, you know, any superhero movie that you ever see or, or any terrorism movies, it's, bombs are in a very specific place. So, and you can picture it in your head, someone hiding a bomb in the grandstand, like right. a movie, movie plot. So it, just, it made sense. Why would I question it? And uh, that was my mind just went blank after that. Every single person in my life was dead. And I had no idea at 19 years old how to process that or what to do next and brian had family at the finish line and he we had other teammates that were at the race so he was he was going to go find them to make sure that his family was okay and his friends were all right and i found a, a news reporter because now all these news crews were starting to come in because i didn't 
back then I didn't run with a cell phone and I, I borrowed a cell phone from one of them and I dialed my mom's cell phone number and it went, it didn't even go to voicemail. It, an automatic, automated message came up that said the person you're trying to call is out of service area and she called my dad, same message, grandmother, same message, girlfriend, same message. And to me, it wasn't that they had shut down cell service in the city because they're worried about cell phones being used to detonate more devices. It was that their phones blew up in an explosion and it was just another piece of evidence that everyone was gone. And that happened in just a matter of time frame of five, 10 minutes that this all went through your head. Right. And it turned out that your family and you had quite a few of your family members over at the finish line to see you cross. Mm -hmm. The bombs didn't go off in the stands. No. So the bombs had gone off on the opposite side of the street. So if my uncle hadn't gotten my parents, and my family those tickets and that's where they would have been standing and we're really lucky they were able to get out of there physically unscathed my father who's a career firefighter paramedic and emergency room nurse actually went towards the bombs and started helping people and putting on tourniquets and directing patient flow and really proud of him and everything that he did that day but it was you know a couple hours before i you know, found out that my family was alive and then were able to locate them to leave Boston. And it was, you know, I think your brain does a funny thing and in times when it experiences extreme stress and trauma that it just blocks things out. And, you know, specifically when I was going to write the book and I submitted, you know, part of the manuscript and the publisher said, you know, can you write more about the, the first chapter? Because, you know, in my story, the juicy part that everyone wants to hear about is the Boston Marathon bombing and you sit there and you try and try and try to remember, but there are, you know, long stretches of time post bombing that I, as much as I try to remember, I just can't, it's like it's erased from my memory. Well, you were not only, I mean, you were very close to finishing, you're exhausted from the race and then to have that sudden shock to your system and then to have all that mental thought process of your family and my god are, are they there are they not there i'm starting to mess with your mind that was a heck of a gut punch right there and and just uh you know a very traumatic thing for you to have to go through how long was it before you were able to find your family it was about two hours it, i mean it felt like forever forever right and you possibly could have been in that area when they went off, if it wasn't for your hip injury, right? It was the luckiest injury I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were, because my parents were following, the, the Boston Marathon is an excellent tracking system uh, to the point where, the, I mean, they got my 40K split and they had been following it religiously. And they were so certain that I was going to be crossing the finish line that my dad was filming on his cell phone camera and he had the camera going for five seconds before he actually got the bombs on camera actually was on that opposite side of the street. So that was all stuff that had to get submitted to the FBI and really crazy. Well, that event, and it really comes out when I read your book of everything that you went through that day in that period of time. And that started an issue that you had, but it also started your journey into your new life. After that, you were dealing with very severe PTSD afterwards. You were not able to sleep. You're having nightmares at times, sweats, everything. And you couldn't get rid of it. I mean, it was just lingering on for quite a long time. 
Yeah, and I think this is really one of the most important parts of the book um, that I try to get across because, you know, it was a difficult decision to publish the book. I I published a lot of very personal stories that, you know, I knew once that I made this decision, they were out in the world and anyone can read about it. Now it's such a strange thing that you'll get a a message through the, the Facebook book account by someone you've never met reiterating something that happened in your life. And it's a strange thing, but it was so important for me to start the dialogue about mental health because there's such a stigma around it. And that's what I see in emergency medicine all the time is that people don't want to talk about it because they're embarrassed, they're ashamed. And I was, I was, I didn't want to talk about it. I was a 19 year old guy. I didn't want to seem weak because to me it was, uh, I was comparing myself to everyone else from that day. I didn't lose any limbs. All of my family's alive. People have this way worse than me. So why should I feel like this? I'm being weak if I'm feeling like this. And um, additionally, it was, you know, my high school girlfriend and my family that were struggling with because they were at the finish line. They saw the bombs. They experienced all that. And they were only there because I was running. If I wasn't running that day, they would have been far, far away from it. So I had this personal accountability to it. And I took it upon myself that I needed to make sure that they were okay and it was just suppressing everything that I'd experienced from that. You day. felt guilty. Absolutely, absolutely. Hmm. That's uh, that's interesting how the mind works. But you worked through it, and then people asked you if you were going to do the marathon the following year, the 2014, and you said yes, I am going to do it. But you had a real struggle with making that decision. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it was there was this huge Boston Strong movement, and it was the big thing, especially people that you know were Bostonians and lived in New England. It was we needed to get we need to take the Boston Marathon back. We need to to regain this big celebration that we have in our city every year, and we needed to to make things right again. So, of course, I was going to go back and run. It was. I needed to do it and I felt like I needed to do it. I didn't have to do it, but I felt like I needed to because everyone around me had this expectation that that's what I was going to do. And it was, you know, the week before the race and I was just so uncertain about going back. I was terrified being in the city and large crowds and unattended bags, all that stuff terrified me. And, you know, Boston and on marathon Monday, the year after that was the last place I thought I wanted to be. Yeah, but you also say in your book that you felt a responsibility to run it in 2014 because of the Children's Hospital, the Boston Children's Hospital, and you felt that they were relying on you to finish what you wanted to accomplish with the Boston Marathon in 2013. Right, and you know, in 2013, I made a promise to a lot of people who donated money to children's hospital and I made promises to children in children's hospital that I would finish the Boston marathon. And, you know, if a bomb didn't go off, of course I would have finished, but technically I did not cross the finish line of the Boston marathon. And that's what ultimately led to the decision that I needed to get over whatever I was going through and suck it up and go back and run in 2014. Yeah. You did it and you finished. And then you, uh, your father kind of was throwing you some Ted talk stuff because of Mm -hmm. what you were going through with your PTSD. And you came across a person by the name of Alex Sheen. He does a thing called Because I Said I Would. And you Mm -hmm. sent him an email and you never expected anything to come back. You told him a little bit about your story and he responded to you personally and uh, invited you to come out and do a TED Talk on the Boston Marathon experience that you had. 
And that changed your life, especially with public speaking, because you were scared to death to, to speak in public. Oh, my God. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah, Alex is an incredible person. His movement and what he does with because I said I would change so many people's lives, including my own. And yeah, when I sent that email to Alex, really just to thank him because I didn't want to go back and finish the marathon. And his mission reminded me that I had made this promise and I needed to, to keep good on it. And I said, you know, thank you for doing what you do because if you didn't, I might not have gone back and finished the Boston Marathon and I would have regretted it for the rest of my life. And he emailed me back the next day and he said, this is exactly what my mission's about. And do you think you'd have time for a phone call? And I want to hear your story from the beginning. So I called him and he was silent for the whole time. And at the end, he said, I want you to come out to Columbus, Ohio in September. So this was May. Come out in September and I want you to give a talk on your experience. He said, not everyone can relate to marathon running. Said, so you need to have some sort of message that you can get across to any person. Any person can relate to it. And you'll have about 15 minutes. And I was so thrilled. I said, oh, absolutely. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm so excited. So I spent the whole summer working on this talk and working with him. He's a phenomenal speechwriter. And my idea for this message was that I wanted people to not let fear dictate their lives because for you know, those two years I was letting fear control my ability to, you know, I didn't want to go to a concert because there were too many people or I wouldn't want to go into a Red Sox scene because I was terrified to go into Boston. And it was really impacting my life. And ultimately, if I let that fear control me, those terrorists accomplished exactly what they wanted. They wanted to paralyze people with fear and the most important thing is to not let that happen and to keep going and be resilient. And that was what my message was going to be. And until I got to Columbus, Ohio, and Alex told me there were going to be over a thousand people. And then I had an <laughs> intense amount of fear that I didn't want to do something again. Right. But you knocked it out of the park. Uh, and I have a link to that TED talk. I've watched it a couple of times. And I think you mentioned in, in your book uh, that when you started talking, the crowd fear went away completely. And then you started to really get into your talk and you could feel yourself becoming more confident up there. And me as a person that was watching the TED Talk on YouTube, I could tell that, you know, I watched it after I read it in your book, but um, I could tell you were getting more and more resilient. And you especially got fired up when you talked about the fact that the terrorists were going to take away what they were supposed to accomplish in this and make you fearful of running the Boston Marathon in 2014, you accelerated at that point. And it was, it was very powerful talk. And I suggest everybody listening out there, take a look at it. Yeah. Pu public speaking has become a, a huge passion of mine. I was really fortunate through because I said it would after that to do several talks and now with the book, I would, I've been able to, to give quite a few talks. And um, it's just a, a great platform to reach a bunch of, people and feel like I have a message that's important to be shared. So you were continuing your path, but you, you felt empty still. You felt that the PTSD was not, you were not getting over the Boston Marathon experience. And you had an opportunity to, uh, to get a taste in uh, some international travel. Um, it was a mission in Nicaragua, where you were going to help out medical mission. Tell me about that and, and how that first experience internationally 
what that did for you. Yeah, so as a, a brand new paramedic, so I was just turned 21, and the hospital that I had been working on, the emergency room, had this opportunity that they were going to send people to some. Uh, there's a two part trip really where you would go to some villages and provide CPR training and we'd give some supplies and then war back in cities where we'd be working with firefighters. My responsibility was working with them on different types of trauma assessments and trauma management. And, you know, previously in my life, uh, you know, I was on the the cookie cutter track of I finished high school at 18, went on to a four-year degree. I was doing my medical school applications and I had my life planned out. And and everything was great. I had, I'd argue that until the Boston Marathon bombing, I never faced any form of adversity in my entire life. I had wonderful parents. I always had everything I needed. I was in a good school. I was financially independent. And I never had any reason to deviate from that track or explore or experience the world. But, um, you know, this is where I talk about kind of the dangerousness of expectations because I thought, okay, if I can get myself back to the Boston Marathon 2014 and cross the finish line, I'll have this form of closure and the nightmares will stop and everything will stop. And then it was a week after I finished the Boston Marathon that I had another nightmare. So it's like, what do I have to, you know, I overcame my fear, finished the trace. I'm like, what do I have to do to get rid of this? What do I have to do to get back to normal? And I realized after talking to a few counselors and I'm always careful here because speaking to counselors is great and it can work for a lot of people. And so I'm not saying that it's bad to do that. It's it's really important to do that. And that was the first step in my journey towards healing. It just didn't completely work for me and I needed to figure something else out. And that for me was I needed to completely change my life. I needed to do, do something different, discover why the world was a good place again. So I went on this mission trip to Nicaragua and I'd never left the country before. And it was so eye-opening to me that there was a place out there that I'd never even heard of. And it was one of the most beautiful places in the entire world. And I said, you know, I should go for a run here. Purely just because if I run, then I'll be able to see more. I very literally will just be able to cover more ground and see how amazing this really remote part of this country is. And so I put my running shoes on and this was, I realized, you know, aside from cross-country races, you know, this is the first time I've ever really ran on a trail. And there was no crowd. There was no noises. There were no cars. There was nothing but me in the trees and then on this beach. And I loved running again, purely because I was doing it because I wanted to. I wasn't training for a race. I wasn't trying to achieve the PR. I didn't want to medal. I was running in this very primitive feeling in my chest and I rediscovered why it was important to me. And it was, you know, undoubtedly the most important run I've ever done in my entire life. You probably went through a lot on that run, not only just the beauty and all that, but you probably had a lot of stuff that you worked out during that also. Um, you found that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. This may be it for me. This may be what I need to do to overcome what I was experiencing over the last year and a half or whatever it was that you were experiencing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it was important you know, for a lot of reasons, but you know, everyone who's listening knows running is an important part of their life. And the way I gave this analogy to someone the other day is when you have an IT band injury, I know that, all right, I need to stretch, I need to foam roll more, but in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be back on track and I'll, I'll be able to run again. Because I go crazy and I can't run. You know, it, it's Dude. horrible when you have an injury. It, it, everyone's been there. Uh, but my injury that was keeping me from running was in my head. 
And I didn't have a timeline. I had no idea how long it was going to take or what I was going to have to do to enjoy running. After the marathon bombing in 2013, I, I didn't run for the rest of the summer. I quit running in college because I just didn't think I could do it in the fall. And, you know, I only trained because I had to for a bus and I was miserable. I hated doing it leading up to the, the marathon in 2014. And even the marathon in 2014, I didn't enjoy it because I was too nervous the whole time. So, you know, this is now January of 2015. I had the first run that I've enjoyed since April, 2013. And I felt I have running back. This is what I needed. And I want to do more. So when you were in Nicaragua and you went through that run, you didn't go out there to run a race. That wasn't an international trip that you went to do any type of race. Yeah. What was the trigger point for you where you said, I'm going to do the seven continents? Yeah, I think like I was saying, I had a pretty typical upbringing for, you know, growing up in suburban Massachusetts and uh, had been very goal oriented uh, growing up. And with races, it was just always very goal oriented. And it, I was amazed by how I could have had no idea about how beautiful some place in the world that I'd never heard of before. And I said, you know, I want to start running around the world. What's the best way to do this? And how can I get the most out of it and the most diversity? And it just popped into my head. Well, maybe I'll set the goal to run a marathon in every continent. And that was it. That started it right there. So, so then Australia, that was one of your solo trips that you went on. Um, you mentioned in your book that uh, you don't like to travel with people because you like to meet new people. And that's very evident. When I read your book, you met so many great people out there. But we'll get to the this fascination with Tom Brady, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. <laughs> <laughs> but you went there, actually, when you went to Australia, you went there to run a race. Um, but you also, you dove the Great Barrier Reef when you were there. Yeah, yes. Scuba diving is one of my big passions. Right. And then you did the uh, the North Face 50K. That was your first mm -hmm. race. And and what I noticed also in your book is you don't, you don't like traditional races, organized, traditional, sanctioned races that everybody does. You want to do something completely different. And was yeah. the North Face 50K completely different for you? It was. Yeah, it, was a, it was a big shift because I started my running career road running in big city races and, you know and part of that was i just didn't want to run in cities anymore i didn't like it i didn't have the appeal to it and having this run in a remote part of nicaragua i want to be in the trails i want to be in the mountains and the north face 50k it's now called ultra trail australia was my first legitimate trail race and it was my first race over the marathon distance and you know the funny story behind that race this was it was my first time running internationally and i had briefly looked at the profile and saw that there was I off the top of my head, maybe it was two thousand feet, two thousand five hundred feet of elevation gain over fifty K. I thought, you know, it's not too bad. And it literally wasn't until the night before the race I was uh my roommates the where we were staying were uh two Kiwis and this Aussie guy and we we were chatting about the profile and two of them were doing the hundred K and me and the Australian guy were doing fifty K. I said, Oh well, you know, 2,500 feet, that's not that bad. And they all stopped talking and looked at 2,500 meters. <laughs> I know, I saw that part in your book right there. <laughs> and then uh, that was triple of what you were expecting. Yeah, but I got through it and I loved it. I absolutely loved it because it was, it was what I wanted. I got to see a part of the world that if I wasn't running that race, I would have never gone there, never thought to go there. And 
It was so beautiful and I loved every single minute of it. That fueled your fire to want to go to your next adventure. Cause you would, you would do these international trips, but you would go for an extended period of time. So you would work three shifts back at home to make money to save up to go on to your next trip. Yeah, when I was in the United States, it was because Australia, I did on my summer break from college going into my senior year, and then everything else was kind of after that. So when I finished college, I would just work 70, 80 hours a week for however long I felt that I had to do that until I could afford the next trip and be so it's kind of three months in the United States, four months somewhere else, three months in the United States, four months somewhere else. Yeah. You you learned uh maybe it it's not learned a lesson, but something really, really struck you and and it's something that you carry on with your life. And it was a sad situation, but it was something that you learned. You met an older gentleman that uh was out there, Kevin Foyle and uh he invited you to come over to Christ Church and you declined because you had something else going on and that that never would happen that you could catch him the next time. Yeah, that was uh really unfortunate. He was a, a great great guy, a great runner, a great person. And we had developed our friendship out in the Blue Mountains and I said, "Oh, I said, well, I'm, I'm actually I'm heading to New Zealand and three or four weeks after that." And he said, "Oh, he said, you know, swing through Christ Church, we'll go for a run, we'll do all this stuff and um, it never ended up happening. I had, that was my first kind of big solo international trip. So I was, had made a lot of plans. And after that, I never did this. It was, after that, it was just you show up in a country and then you figure it out as you go. But um, because of that, I didn't didn't go see him and continued on my trip. And he said, oh, well, next time, next time you're down there. And I was absolutely certain I fell in love with New Zealand that I would go back. And uh, three weeks later, Kevin died. Yeah. And what you learned out of that or what what you took away from that, let's not say learn, but what you took away is that life is short and never pass up an opportunity like that because you don't know if, if that'll be available to you again. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, one of the uh, things that, you know, you don't want to say fortunate, but working in emergency medicine, I, I've seen a lot of people die and a lot of people die unexpectedly. And what say that's not going to be you. The right. Next morning, you have no idea what the timeline is, and no, no one knows exactly. the The next, I believe, the next adventure that you went on was Antarctica. <laughs> the shortest one, too, just because of the pricing and the logistics. Right, but you you had a, a good time when you went over there. You were in 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 some of these these cities that you've been into, I can't pronounce. I, I you know, I, I'm, I'm not good at it. You probably are, but you stayed in, uh, Punta Arenas, Chile, right? Yeah. And the marathon, it was marathon adventures and a fellow by the name of Steve put on an impromptu marathon in Punta Arenas. And you didn't know if you wanted to do that and then go and do Antarctica. You're really toying with that. But you ended up at the yeah. last minute doing it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things when you're a, a runner and you're around a bunch of other runners who are deciding to do something, you're not going to be the one left out to not do it. Right. <laughs> was, was what happened. But yeah, it was it was in January 2016. So it was, I had to get uh, permission from my professors because it was a week after our winter break. So I needed to get another week off of classes to go do it. And when I told them that I was going to do, they were absolutely all right with it, which was nice. 
But yeah, the Marathon Adventures puts on this race in Punta Arenas as well because most of the people that are running Antarctica have this goal of running on seven continents. So they said, oh, well, if you use our package, then we'll have a sanctioned race in South America as well so you can do two continents in the same trip, which is massively appealing to a lot of people. Uh, I was on the fence for two reasons. I was just um, working through an injury at the time, and I would have never forgiven myself if I injured myself so much doing this kind of makeshift race in Chile and then couldn't run in Antarctica. So I really didn't want to do it that way. And also it wasn't kind of the race that I was looking for. Like you said earlier, I wanted the different, bizarre, weird, remote races and that didn't really fall into that category for me. But yeah, just kind of the peer pressure of it ended up jumping in and doing it. Yeah, it was four, it. four loops in a hot city, right? And based on what I've read, yeah, that, that definitely didn't fit the mold that you were looking for. But you had a situation during that race that brought back your Boston experience about, I think, was it a, you were in mile, about mile 20 or something like that? Yeah. And a car came up and you were kind of freaking out because the people in the car were yelling at you and you didn't recognize them. And then it pulled up in front and you thought, well, this is it, man. I'm done. And yeah, uh, it was like, oh, I can't get away from this stuff. Yeah, what had happened was the uh, when you get there for this Antarctica race, they basically tell you, so, you know, this is our flight window. And whenever we get the opportunity that the conditions permit, you know, on a second's notice, we've got to be able to go and because uh, you might not get it again. And so everyone agreed to that. And the weather looked pretty horrible in, in Antarctica the day that we did the South America race. So, and said, all right, we'll go on with the South America one then. And we're running for 20 miles. Yeah, car pulls up. Get in the car, get in the car. And yeah, I'd only known some of these other runners for two days, maybe two, three days. So I didn't really recognize that, especially 20 miles into a race. And, you know, I just kind of froze and panicked. And then I looked and said, Bobby, get in the car. So they called me by name. And I said, I want to say, we got a flight window. I'm like, oh, so, you know, you hustle into the car, they drive you back to, to where we're staying. You try to throw all your cold weather gear into this bag, and then you know an hour later you're on a plane, and two hours later you're in and out. It's quite a, a whirlwind. And you have to you have to be ready to go because there is just a very very small window. To yeah, ten days. So it's, you got to take it when you can get it. So what was Antarctica like? How did did you enjoy that? You were dodging penguins and oh, it was awesome. It's one of one of my favorites, I think. And it's just cool to be in a place that's relatively compared to the rest of the world untouched and you get to see you know very good um, example is you know on the great barrier reef it was great but it's devastating to see some of the damage that's caused by you know human human caused damage and you know to be in antarctica and see this pristine wildlife and environment and animals that have been having such little human interaction that they're still so curious about humans and that's what's funny about you know you're running and penguins are coming up to you and yeah, I'll never say that it got old, but you know, by 20 miles, when your legs are tired and you're running in snow, you're, you're getting a bit tired about trying to move out of the way, out of their way. Of the penguins, yeah. No, I can imagine. <laughs> but what an experience that was! I, I can't even imagine. Incredible people, and yeah, it's phenomenal. There was a person that uh, ran that same year that you did. He uh, he started the 50 State Marathon Club. His name's Steve Boone. Yeah, Steve there. Yep. Yeah, I saw when I looked at the results, he was he ran that that year. 
that guy is a crazy man. He's run, I can't even tell you how many marathons he's run. He's got to be about seven, 800, maybe even more than that now. Yeah, I think when I met him, he he was over 600. Cause I remember it was just inconceivable. Yeah, I think he made his money in software or something like that. And he, mm-hmm. he was able to go just about every weekend, him and his wife. Um, and his wife runs too. I, I'm a 50 state finisher, so I, I, I know him. And, uh, I had a friend that actually he finished two years ago, the seven continents and his last one was Antarctica, but I don't know if he went through the tour that you went through. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you're a little crazy after you got done with the Antarctica marathon, you and a friend that you met out there named Dave decided to do the Arctic plunge. What is wrong with you? (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't know. My dad asked me about it once a week. <laughs> that must have been exhilarating, though. You no, know, I think it was just like such a remarkable experience. You didn't really feel the cold that much. It was well worth it. No regrets there. Yeah. Well, uh, how long were you in the water? Is this just in and out? Oh, yeah. Four seconds, maybe five seconds. Just, just enough to dunk under and get back out into a towel and hope, hope all my digits yeah wow it's crazy so as we're going through this a little bit you're starting to find that your comfort zone your happy place is in desolate areas somewhere on the face of the earth that you can be alone and experience new things in a quiet atmosphere and you're not a big city person as far as running in big cities or doing any of that anymore, right? Yeah, that's correct. Hmm. Um, Africa, Kilimanjaro. That's a quite a story, especially when you get up towards the top. That's uh, you get a little graphic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, Africa was a funny. One. I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to go in Africa for a race, and I, I met someone in Antarctica who had done the Kilimanjaro Marathon earlier, and he said, "Oh, I, I know a guy who can get you a good deal," and he um, had done it where you run the race and then the next day you start doing the Kilimanjaro trek uh, six days. I said, oh yeah, that'd be great. I said, you know, send me along the information. So he connected me and this guide, Emmanuel, through Facebook. Because Kilimanjaro is not cheap. And I, I knew that because I had Tanzania on the radar, uh, but had really ruled out going up the mountain. But just with this kind of connection, it became a really cheap option to go do it. Mm-hmm. I don't know why not. It would be kind of a fun thing to do. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, it was one of the scariest financial decisions to wire. $2,000, you wired it to, to some guy. Some guy in Tanzania that I had no idea. And, you know, it's scary when you're the person at the bank or two, sure, you're sure. I know. <laughs> but I don't even know. But, uh, I mean, that was the cost for, like, man, over a month and month and a half in Tanzania. Um, so it was a great, great value. You wrote in your book, this is about uh, the wire transfer to be able to do the Africa trip to Mount Kilimanjaro to hike it and run the marathon. I found this to be the ver- be very interesting and throw your faith into the universe. And you know it's worrisome when you get to the counter and the bank teller reviews the paperwork, looks up at you and asks, are you sure? Yeah, it was great. Um the the race itself, I didn't massively enjoy, and I described that later in the chapter because I had just always envisioned that anywhere I ran in Africa was going to be a pretty uh, remote, wild run, and it was through the the city that's kind of closest to Kilimanjaro, Tanzania, is called Moshi, and it was mostly just through 
um, city roads and dirt roads and just, you know, I, I did it and it was fine, but what well, didn't massively enjoy it. The trek up Kilimanjaro itself was, um, it was good. Like I, I liked it, but, uh, it's still, it's a really crowded mountain. It's a commercial mountain. It, it was a nice thing to, you know, to do and to see and get to see a lot of beauty from it. And because of this guide, I got to see a lot of different things that uh, some people might not that really enjoyed it from that aspect. You, uh, you didn't actually say much about the Kilimanjaro marathon. It was very well organized and they did a good job with it. it it's a great race. It just wasn't what I was looking for. At right. all. You got to the top of Kilimanjaro and uh, I'll let, I'll let people uh, read the book. When you read his book, Running Wild, you can, you can read what went on at the top of uh, Kilimanjaro. It's a, uh, Pretty graphic, <laughs> but good. Um, but, you, but you did pull out that Tom Brady uh, shirt when you were at the top yeah, there. That's come with me all around the world, that jersey. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I'm a Broncos fan, but we don't. And, and now, you know, you got uh, you got to start rooting for Tampa Bay. <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny is when I was running in Antarctica, that was the year that the Broncos won the Super Bowl. Yeah. Denver played the Patriots in the AFC Championship. So mm-hmm. I was watching that at the, the bar in South America with actually a, a bunch of Broncos fans. There were well more people from Colorado than New England on that trip. Yeah. Well, New England was winning so much at that time. I think people just kind of shifted over to Colorado just <laughs> wanting to see New England knocked out. But uh, so um, you had a, a really, really, really heavy duty gut punch. You had a friend that you worked with, a coworker, and also a person that you did and spent many, many hours in the White Mountains over in your area doing trails and, and all that. And she became very close to you and you had some very bad news about her. You got all these messages and all that in the middle of the night and you were afraid to to listen to him because you knew it wasn't going to be good. And you found out that uh, your friend Rachel took her own life. Yeah. Yeah. It was in December of 2016. You know, I've gone through sudden death of friends, not suicide, but sudden death of friends. And, uh, and I just had one recently within the last two months that I just saw. And it's, uh, I kind of, I kind of felt your pain when I read all that. And, and you talked about it the rest of your book, actually. Um, yeah, it was, you know, at that point, by December 2016, I felt that I was really, I felt like I was over the Boston Marathon. I hadn't had a nightmare in months. And the rest of these comments, it was just, it was a joy to do. And it was a privilege to be in the situation I had. And I was loving every part of my life. And it's like, you know, when you finally get back to the top, it's almost like you get knocked back down to the bottom sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, I got to say, um, and then people can read the book to find out, you know, a lot about your friend, Rachel, but I think you honored her very, very well throughout your book and, and kept her memory alive. And I'm sure you still continue to do that to this day. She meant a lot to you. There was a couple other things. I'm not going to go through all the rest of your races except for your last one, because that was one hell of a chapter, that last yeah. race that you went through. But, um, uh, yeah. I thought what uh, really a couple cool fun stories that you had, just the uh, the runs that you went with with one of your friends that invited you over to a village in Rwanda. One of the greatest experiences you had when you were on the run is a lot of children came up and started running with you. 
Yeah, one of my best buddies from college, Ryan, uh, was in the Peace Corps, and he was in a real... I still think that his village that I went to is the most remote place I've been to in the world. And he was the first Peace Corps volunteer there. So for a lot of the people in the village who were born after the genocide in Rwanda had never seen someone with white skin before. And, you know, he was a massive novelty. And then when I came, you know, it was just it was chaos and it was just so special uh, to be there and to, to experience this and meet these people. And yeah, we'd be, you know, you'd have to run before sunrise every morning it was too hot not to and all these kids would be walking from miles and miles away to ryan's village to go to where the schoolhouse was where he was teaching and they caught us on on our way coming back into the village from a run and they all started running you know they'd run for as long as they could until they needed to drop off and you'd have another group of kids everyone's laughing and smiling and it was just one of the most pure experiences of humanity i've ever had it's amazing the experiences you had. And, and another one that I, I found that I, oh, there's two of them. Your friend Joe, that you went and did the Patagonia, like my hat here, a uh, 50 mile race that you did. That little story about going, uh, for an impromptu run 15 miles and you got four stamps on your passport and you went, uh, two countries on just a 15 mile run. Yeah, it was just we had uh, nothing to do that time. <laughs> and, uh, so, so Joe lives in Telluride, Colorado. Oh, she does. It was actually her who picked up my uh, friend Brian, and they both met uh, me and Lucy at the finish of the Colorado Trail so three weeks ago now. But yeah, Joe and I had a we had done a trek in Patagonia before the race, and the weather was looking kind of gross in the the park before uh we were supposed to go and we kind of had a few days to play with and i was looking at the map on google maps and said, we're really close to argentina you want to just want to do a long run and so yeah we ran across the border and went through customs exiting chile and entering argentina ran around for an hour or so then ran back through argentina back through chile and it was great it just went, i've always said that some of my best memories on these travels are just things that I I didn't expect to happen. It was the spontaneity, and that's why it's always been so important to leave your schedule open and, and let these things happen as they come. You had to go through customs, too, twice, right? <laughs> yeah. They weren't quite used to seeing people with just a running pack on. I think that was the first time they ever just searched in ultimate direction pack to go across the border. Yeah, that's crazy. The uh, That's... that's <laughs> I can't even imagine those experiences. You know, I, I think people, when they read your book or they listen to this podcast, they're going to get very excited about possibly doing a international vacation. I hope so. I, I really hope that if, you know, people are listening, the one thing I take away is if you've been thinking about doing a trip to go run a race or just go somewhere weird and different, I hope that this pushes you over the head edge because you, you won't regret it. You know, the other, the other one that I thought was really the little story that you said in your book is, uh, and this is completely unexpected, was somebody, uh, an Asian person came up to you and asked you for uh, a light or something. Um, yeah. And he was from North Korea. Yeah, the first and only person I've ever met from North Korea. And, it, you know, it was great. And it's an example like if sometimes we just talk about how media just dictates perception of the world. And this is why I always encourage so much international travel, because in the United States, unless you're really searching for international news, you're not going to get any. And even when you do, it's 
generally negative. That's, I mean, that's what makes hot news is negative press. People are addicted to it. So if you don't go out into the world and find what's positive about these other places, um, you need to take that self-initiative. And you know, I don't know a whole lot about North Korea except from what I see on the news and reading articles. And uh, I, I just I didn't recognize his accent when he started talking to me. And I said, "Where are you from?" North Korea. And we could get talking, and we ended up just I was just making some hot chocolate. We were at a, a camp for the night in Patagonia, and uh, just the two of us sitting there under the stars, just talking about our countries and. There's no, uh, I don't know what your policy is, but I mean, there's no bullshit about it. It was just two guys out on a, a camping trip. I mean, had chocolate. It didn't matter what our passport said. So, you know, the countries are just lines drawn on a map and it's become too, too, those lines become too important in the world, I think. I think most of the time uh, it's, people are just happy to be with each other and it's the governments that uh, create all the ruckus you know, out there. And, I, you know, you mentioned in the book that he said he just unfortunately lives in a dictatorship country and it's very frustrating and rough on people out there. But he somehow was able to leave and go do that race. So that's pretty cool. So Nepal, the Everest Marathon, that chapter, it was actually my favorite chapter because you really went into detail on that that race. Um, first of all, I enjoyed reading about your Irish friends that, uh, awesome. kept, uh, yeah. kept getting you drunk and having a good time and, and, yeah. and Fiona who came in, um, and you had to spend a lot of time together because you were acclimating to the altitude because it was a 17,000 foot, uh, altitude that you were running the actual marathon on, right? Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about that experience. I know that you were you acclimating and you were doing hikes and all that stuff to get acclimated. You even kind of became renegades and went over to the Everest base camp. Which they said that you weren't allowed to go to and you could be disqualified, but you they never gave you any crap about that. No, no we, were, we were right there. Yeah, it was just, it was just the best trip. I met some of I met lifelong friends on the trip, and I've I've met lots of people around the world that I've gone and seen and visited after the fact of the race, but. Uh, my Irish friends and Fiona, I mean, I've been living with Fiona in Scotland. She's a, works at the Camborne Reindeer Center. Her family owns it and she's a reindeer herder. And, you know, I've spent out of the last two years, probably at least 19 months of that in Scotland. And that's where I met my girlfriend. And now my life is so entwined there. So it's been so much time with Fee. And because you're so close to Ireland, our friends, you know, Tom and Frank and John, we're always going back and forth between Scotland and Ireland. I've seen those guys so much and Fee's come to America twice. Tom's come to America twice. It's just this, you know, amazing friendship that we've built around this event. And it's this crazy thing when you look back at it, when I was trying to decide on a race for Asia, if I decided on something different, my life would look impossibly different right Right. now. So it's just, you know, you can trace back all these decisions and how they affect your life. And I was so glad that I decided to do that race, but you're walking with your, some great friends every day through one of the most beautiful parts of the world. It was, it was perfect. It was an amazing situation to be in. And a few of your friends got a virus. It was like a food poisoning, something going on and you dodged the food poisoning, but it came to rear its ugly head about halfway through the marathon for you and the rest, the rest of that 13 miles, 
I, I mean, the stuff that you went through to get to the finish line, I didn't think you were going to finish. I mean, I'm reading this thing and I'm going, how in the world is it? You're losing your eyesight. You can't, you're hanging on, holding on to trees. You're falling down. You're completely disoriented, but you just kept putting one foot in front of the other. Tell me about that. You got to tell me about that. Yeah. You know, it's horrible. I was talking, I was doing an interview probably, probably a couple months ago now, but saying, you know, this virus was going around the camp and you're camping with people, you're in close quarters. And said, you know, I was doing social distancing before it was cool uh, in Nepal. I didn't want, didn't want anything to do with this virus. And yeah, inevitably it caught it and it was exactly halfway in the risk. You do this, this huge descent down into this valley and then you come right back up it on the other side and got to the, the bottom of that and, you know, felt all right. And then started going up and just puked and then, you know, just couldn't stop and then it wasn't like it was a road half marathon it's very well an hour and a half and i'll be done and i can get the medical attention i need it was you know i was in the middle in nepal at the start of the race it was minus four degrees fahrenheit and weather was starting to turn and uh i just knew that i was going to be in a relatively bad spot so i was going to be out here for, for quite a bit longer and started to lose some of my vision fell down a bit of a trail and then got to this last 10k loop to, to get back into Nanche Bazaar to where the race finished and was just done for. It fell into a bush and just didn't think I was going to get back up. And just remember laying there thinking that the, the part that scared me was while I was laying there when I started to feel comfortable. Instead, of, I just stopped shivering and, you know, I, oh, I think I'm okay. And that's when it scared me. It's that if I don't get up, I might not ever get up. And so just pushing myself off the ground and just staggering and because the last so it's a it's a 20 mile linear route to where almost the finish line area is and then you do 5k out 5k back is how that race works so when you're going out on that 10k uh out and back there are other people that are coming back in from the race and i was doing pretty well in the race until this happened and then uh, so I saw Fiona and, and she went by and she said, Oh, you good? I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm, I'm fine. And not fine at all. <laughs> Lying <laughs> through your teeth. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, it was, uh, when I, I reached out, uh, to the, to the checkpoint, got my, the, the band tied around my bag and was coming back in and was just barely moving at a snail's pace. And the Irish guys were on their way out on that loop. And it's one guy, Tom. Bobby, stop messing with us because I was, you know, walking and wobbling across the trail and then I didn't say anything and the guys knew that I was, you know, in some pretty big trouble there. And they said, okay, they said, you know, stay right here. They said, because we weren't far past the checkpoint. They were going to run tag the checkpoint and then we'll, and then we're, we're going to help you get you in. So they, they got out and I uh, kept walking and, and then really it was literally for about 2K, just one guy under each arm. There were three of them there and just, Tom trying to tell me jokes, keep me, keep me awake and keep me talking, keep me laughing, keep my mind active. And just, you know, they sacrificed their, all their time for me, just walking me in and making sure that I was okay. And it, it was interesting because, you know, and I crossed the finish line under their arms. And for so long, I had envisioned what finishing the seven continents was going to look. I knew exactly. Your seven, seven uh, fingers up and coming across, you know. Yeah, I, I knew what the Instagram post was going to be. I knew what I was going to be really triumphant. And it was nothing like that. It's a, it's a very, 
it looks very feeble in this in this photograph, but it's a photograph of me with three lifelong friends. And I can't think of a perfect bookend to that journey and then how it, it mirrors what the rest of these travels were for me because traveling around the world for those few years, the races are what made me do it. That's what initially started the traveling. But what healed me wasn't the running or, or the times or all that. It was all these people that I met that I would have never encountered if I didn't decide to go run around the world. And they showed me how much good there was in the world. And that was the most important, important part of all of it. Yeah. I, when I finished the book, I knew that you didn't, uh, you didn't accomplish the picture that you wanted, but I got the very strong feeling that the picture that you got was the picture that was supposed to be. Absolutely. I have it framed on my desk. You never said though, I, I, you mentioned Frank who everybody thought that he was done and shot and then he came bolting by you guys. Um, but you never said how Fiona finished. Fiona was first woman, first Western oh, was woman. She? Oh, okay. It was her, her first race. Oh really? Oh, uh, her first race. She went, uh, a friend of hers was, uh, um, I mean, she, she works with reindeer and she's in the mountains for miles and miles every day. So I said, you know, you can't just keep telling people it's your first race. You've been conditioned for that your whole life. Right. But, um, but she loves to tell people that she beat me in our first marathon together. So mm. But yeah, she did phenomenal. She did so good. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. Um, and I, I'm glad that that, that was a, that was an incredible finish to your book that marathon that that was uh you know i mean you really go through and you feel what you went through in that so i was i was jazzed i couldn't put it down when i read that chapter yeah no it was it was really good um so that that pretty much does it for your book um you know i suggest people to go out and get your book running wild and read this because it's a very inspirational book and it it shows your life and how you know, you've, uh, uh, overcome to the best that you could, um, your, your issues with the Boston Marathon, PTSD, um, even expressing your feelings about Rachel and all that through the book. It's a very human book. And, uh, uh, I do want to get into just a couple of things that you've done since then. Um, but one thing I got at the very end of the book, actually during the book is that, and I, and I, I really was questioning this because you put in there that people judge you, um, you know, your family, friends and all that of what you chose to do to go out there and to do these trips and to be away at Thanksgiving and holidays and, and all that. And you got, you know, a little bit of, a little bit of pressure on that end. And I was thinking, you know what? I, I'm going to tell him that it's your life, man. You got to go do what your life is supposed to be for you. And that's your passion. And you got to do it. You can't live your life for anybody else. Yeah, I couldn't, couldn't put that better myself. And, you know, I, I'm lucky because the only two people who really mattered in that process were my mom and dad. And they were beyond supportive. They, they were more, it, it scared my mom to death, some of the stuff that I was doing. But, you know, she knew exactly that, that I needed to live my life. So. You know, anyone else who, who was critical, you know, and I felt bad because people were critical of them. He's 22, 23 years old and he's spending all this money. He's going all these places and he, why isn't he settled into a, you know, a, a full-time job and 
And that was my mom and dad, you know, he's living his life. And, you know, the education I got out in, in the world and some of the stuff I've done was more than anything I ever learned in a four-year university. Oh, absolutely. And, and what I don't think people realize when they're listening to this is that uh, you did all this between 21 and 25 years old. You live more life than 99.9% of the people on this earth will ever live. You've seen more stuff already and you're, you're young. I mean, you got your whole life ahead of you. It's just amazing. You know, what you have accomplished then most, most people, I didn't even myself, I, uh, I certainly didn't, don't have anything when I was that age that I could bring to the table that even comes close to what you've did. Um, well, it, it's true. It is, but it's, it's awesome. And it's very Thank inspirational you. and it makes me want to go out. You know, I'm a lot older than you, like a lot older than you. And, uh, and I want to, I don't want to waste a minute. I want to go out and do something. Um, yeah. And you, you continued, um, on afterwards, you've done, you know, I got a whole list of everything that you did. You, you've done three Ironman, your Ironman finisher, but you, one of the big things you did afterwards that, uh, you kind of think you might've put into your book, but you write a blog too. I'm a, it's the Appalachian yeah. trail. Yeah. Yeah. That's mentioned briefly in the, the epilogue, but, uh, I was telling someone the other day of finishing the Appalachian trail and through hiking that is I'm more proud of that than and anything else that I've done. It was just a really important journey. And it, it, that's what mostly helped me work through Rachel's death. The, the continents were helping a little bit, but the Appalachian Trail was the most important part. But she was so supportive of me, uh, you know, anytime when we were out hiking in the whites or doing something, especially when we're on sections of the AT in the whites. I said, oh, you know, I think I'm going to do that one day. I think it's something I'd like to do. And she said, just do it. Just go do it. Do it. And she's always pushing me. So when Rachel died, it was just, there was no questions that I was going to do it at some point to honor her. And how, how long was that? How many miles? You know, two, the year I did, so it changes slightly each year, depending on reroutes and stuff, but it, it, it through hiked it in 2018. It was 2,189.9 miles. Hmm. How many days? 143. Remember that everybody, 143 days. That might come up in, in, in something. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's amazing. And, uh, wow. That makes the Colorado trail like a kitty, kitty trail. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Jim, you saw about more in the first three days of the Colorado trail than you did for four and a half months on the AT. The AT is known for being a bit of a green tunnel here in the, the trees, a lot of hardwood for a good bit of that trail. And it was just such a treat to be out in your state and see how, absolutely breathtaking it is so man it, it, yeah and you just completed that that's how we we connected because you were out here in colorado and i was telling you about the virtual colorado trail challenge that we were doing um and then you got a chance to see brian williams stuff because he did that trail in eight and a half days uh, yeah all mental it's uh it's pretty phenomenal and that just was kind of a coincidence that that all took place. And it looked like you had, I, could, a, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Cause you'd reached out through the Facebook page for the book and where you were in Denver a week ago. Mm -hmm. So you, uh, you finished that and you were with your girlfriend and that was a really nice out, out experience. 43 
days, 44 days, uh, 34, 34 days. days. Okay. Yeah. So it was nice. We had, we had a fair bit of time. So we, we took our time with it. Yeah, it was a great walk and a lot less rainy than the Appalachian trail. And it was beautiful. We really enjoyed ourselves out there. Good time of the year to be out there. Uh, yeah, you got all gambits of it. You probably got, you got some snow, you got some rain, you got some lightning, you got some, Hail. Heat, hail, I mean, yeah. uh, just about everything that you could imagine out there. Yeah, that was great, though. So what's next for you? I know we got the pandemic that's put a, the brakes on just about anything anybody wants to do travel-wise right now. So I mean, races are canceled, obviously. Um, Lucy, uh, my girlfriend, went back to Scotland a week and a half ago, so... I'll head back August 31st, mm. do my two week quarantine. It's a, a very, very strict quarantine there. So I'm, I'm to figure out how to keep myself occupied being locked in a room for two weeks, but I'll uh, work on, work on that. Put a lot of padding yeah, on no. the walls. <laughs> but no, I'm going to, there's a, a kind of a loosely put together trail that goes the length of Scotland. So I'm going to walk that in September and then uh, Pacific Crest Trail next summer. Nice. Nice. Are you, do you work in Scotland too? When you're there, do you have a job out there? Yeah. So I'm working on my, my work visa right now. I'm doing all my medical school applications in Scotland, but we're working, getting our, my work visa done over there. So I've been able to make all my money in America and then go over there for extended periods of time. So, uh, I got five books that I want to give away your book. And of course, we're pushing it to the very end, hoping that people listen to the whole podcast here. Um, but uh, there's a special question that uh, we came up with and an answer. And uh, the first five people that email me at jim at feelgoodrunning.com, the answer to this, I will send them an autographed book, Running Wild, of uh, Bobby. And uh, he has a special message in each one of them for you. Um, so what's the question? How many days did it take me to hike the Appalachian Trail? How many days did it take Bobby to hike the Appalachian Trail? If you email me at jim at feelgoodrunning.com. And if yours is one of the first five that I receive, I will send you a personally autographed copy of Bobby's book, Running Wild. Pretty awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I enjoyed your book. I enjoy your blog. By the way, you have a blog. Thank you. We're going to put all that into the uh, show notes, links to it. You're a very good writer. I don't know how much uh, somebody proofed your stuff, but man, you're a good writer. And I could tell by your blog that it flows right into what you what you wrote in your book. So, I always say it's easy to write something that you're passionate about. It, it is. It is. Maybe I should write something. I don't know. But uh, good luck to you. I hope uh, you continue your adventures forever how long you want to do that. And uh, you find the right person to be with that will do those adventures with you for life, if that's what you're looking for. I'm really lucky. I think I found her. Perfect. Awesome. I'm glad to hear it. Jim, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed the conversation. And to all your listeners, don't let the pandemic get you down. Make sure you're you're still out running perfect all right bobby thank you so much well how about that runners wasn't that just absolutely amazing 
I am so impressed on how much living Bobby has done and to only be 27 years old. Think about where you were at when you were 27. He really has clarity and found his love and passion. And I'm going to be honest with you. It made me think about my own life and the things I still want to do, you know, and and maybe it's time for me to stop thinking about them and, and start doing them. What about you? Time's not stopping. Believe me, it's not stopping. Sometimes you just need something like this, a a Bobby to come along uh, to inspire you. And he definitely inspired me. Now, during our conversation, we discussed his TED Talk because I said I would. And I have a link to it in the show notes. And you really need to watch this. It's, It's so powerful. And it was before he went out and did all of his international adventures before he discovered that. So you can get the link at the show notes at feelgoodrunning.com for this episode and watch that. And as I said earlier, we said actually, the first five people that email me at jim at feelgoodrunning.com, that's jim at feelgoodrunning.com, with the correct answer to the question that Bobby asked, how many days did it take him to complete the Appalachian Trail? That's the question. And the first five people that send the answer to jim at feelgoodrunning.com will receive an autographed book, Running Wild. And I'm going to send that personally to you. So how about that? You know, it's people like Bobby that show us that despite tragedy and highs and lows of everyday life, this world is a wonderful place if we have the desire and are willing and open to explore it. Here is a running quote to keep you inspired and feeling good. All right, y'all, it's that time for the quote of this episode. Always got to bring you an inspirational quote. And of course, I am uh, taking this right out of Bobby O'Donnell's book, Running Wild. He has no idea he has a quote, but I am. uh, This is the inaugural quote for Bobby O'Donnell, whether he likes it or not. Seriously, what an amazing person he is. All right, here's the quote. Adventure and spontaneity is what brings a smile to my soul and allows me to live without the regret of ever having to wonder, what if? That's so true for, for a lot of us. Adventure and spontaneity is what brings a smile to my soul and allows me to live without the regret of ever having to wonder, what if? Are you wondering what if? Well, if so, do something about it. All right. I mean, look at what Bobby has done with his life. And he's still only 27 years old. He's got his whole future ahead of him. What an inspiration. I'm so grateful he came on to our show today. All right. That's it for this episode, folks. And uh, thank you for listening. Please share it. You know, that good karma thing I talked about at the very beginning. A good karma thing. Please share the episode and uh, it'll help it to grow. We're almost at 10,000 downloads. I'm forever grateful to you. And uh, don't forget, first five people, I'm going to say it again. First five people that send me an email at jim at feelgoodrunning.com have a chance to get a free copy of Bobby O'Donnell's book, Running Wild, which is personally autographed by Bobby. All right. As I always say... Just show up and always, always feel good about your running. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please consider sharing this podcast with your running friends and spread the feel good running vibe around you. 
Head over to feelgoodrunning.com to access all the links and resources mentioned on the show. Until next time, keep motivated, keep focused, and keep on running. It is sure to make you, well, feel good.